In local news, Raleigh, North Carolina. Today, the North Carolina Supreme Court heard a case that would determine the future of the state's election commission, among other policies. Cooper v. Berger and Moore is one of several challenges filed by Governor Roy Cooper and others against conservative legislative leaders as a result of their repeated efforts to limit his power after his election victory last November. Bob Hall with Democracy North Carolina says changing the structure of the State Board of Elections would have a long-term impact on the state. If you make those seats very partisan, you can develop gridlock, I'm afraid, and a lot of things will just come to a halt. It's important to at least have a framework where decisions get made. After Cooper's election last November, state lawmakers convened a special session just before the end of the year with the objective of passing bills to remove power from the governor and, in most instances, transferring them to the General Assembly. Hall says the outcome of today's case will serve as a response to partisan efforts by state lawmakers. There's a pattern, unfortunately, of the legislature going after the governor as soon as the Democrat was elected as governor. They tried to take away appointment powers and control his staff and do a number of things. They've gone after the judicial branch. A separate lawsuit filed by Cooper challenges efforts to reduce the size of the State Court of Appeals and remove his power to control the Industrial Commission and influence what the governor includes in his annual budget. Raleigh, North Carolina. Room for improvement in support of NC minority-owned businesses. There are more than 180,000 minority-owned businesses in North Carolina, but growing and sustaining this business isn't easy. This long-held claim by business owners is confirmed by the new report by the North Carolina Budget and Tax Center. Analyst William Munn says on average, even when they do qualify for a loan, minority-owned businesses receive half of the funds their white counterparts receive. If you make those seats very partisan, you can develop gridlock, I'm afraid, and a lot of things will just come to a halt. It's important to at least have a framework where decisions get made. According to a University of Michigan study, among businesses with annual sales of over, over $5,100, 41% of the minority-owned companies received loans, compared to 52% of white-owned businesses. The report recommends more outreach to minority business owners to ensure they're aware of the resources available and creating a state fund for small business lead and creating a state fund for small business lending. For almost 20 years, North Carolina has operated a historically underutilized business or hub program, but the rate of participation varies by county, ranging from only 1 to 3%. Munn says it's hard to ensure that minority-owned businesses engage in the process found that there's a very healthy base throughout the state and they just don't know or aren't really seeing the return on investment. They don't see it worth their time to be engaged. Once businesses are certified hub vendors, they're offered greater exposure to opportunities such as state contracts. The report also recommends simplifying the certification process. This is Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Hello, 88.1 WKNC. You are tuned in to Taste of the Triangle. I am your normal host, Will Mayo, and I have with me a special guest. Hi, this is Matt Schneider. And uh, we are going to talk to you about a trip that we have both gone on uh, to a country that 
not not too many people get a chance to go to. We went to China. Yes, uh, I traveled to China a few years ago on business and was uh, subjected to a variety of culinary delights. And uh, Will, I guess you have traveled to China over the summer, so I'm curious to hear uh, your experiences with what uh, what the the food offerings you get to experience. Yes, I uh, did get to try a lot of different food. I got to kind of dig into the culture a little bit. We had a, a tour guide that was local to the area that we were touring. So we started in Shanghai and worked our way up to up the coast to Nanjing and Jinan and then Beijing. And I went on a side trip after that to Xi'an so I could see the Terracotta Warriors. That which is was cool. really cool. Now I'm curious as to what the internal transportation was that you took uh, during your travels there because that's a variety of different provinces that you made it to. Yeah, we, we traveled to a lot of different places, mostly by bus. Uh, we would spend a day or two in a specific area and kind of work our way up the coastline. I dropped the, uh, the names of some of the major cities we went to, but there were a lot lots of smaller stops in between. But uh, we did from Jinan to Beijing take a train, the bullet train, at 300 kilometers an hour, which was pretty wild. That was really fast. Uh, when you, I, I was not able to take a bullet train when I was there, but uh, could you describe to the audience what it was like when you reached full speed and then let's say you got up to walk around the cabin for a while was it was did it feel any differently than like say an airplane or or was it was it uh, uh just kind of like walking on regular ground it, it was a pretty smooth ride uh the acceleration was honestly fairly quick up to 300 kilometers an hour i'd say in the span of I don't know, five minutes they got it up to that speed. So uh, during that time, there was definitely a, a pull, but once we were coasting at the same speed, kind of just felt like being on a bus or a plane or any other transportation. No kidding. So, and that's a uh, magnetic levitation, isn't it? Yep, they call it the maglev. That's uh, so cool. Very cool. Took a video and uh, the video was so blurry, you could hardly see anything that was zipping by you at, at that speed was was the train comprised or composed most of uh, uh, tourists um, or non-chinese nationals or does does the regular Chinese consumer take it as well uh, it's actually a extremely popular form of transportation in the country uh, one of the biggest perks of Shanghai is that you can be at the center of the city from the airport in seven minutes by taking the maglev wow and it's it's typically like a 45 to a 90 minute drive into the center of the city score one for the trains score one indeed but enough talk about planes trains automobiles uh let's let's talk about food I was surprised to learn the incredible variety of food that there is in China uh, because, you know, here in the United States, everything's super westernized and uh, we just have, you know, Chinese food. Well, over there, they just call it food. Uh, and there, there are a couple different provinces. Uh, Matt, what, what sort of 
types of food did you encounter while you were there? Well, when I traveled to China, it was not in a tourist type of capacity. It was in a business type of capacity. And I was on instructions from the company that I worked for to indulge in any type of food that was put in front of me, essentially. So um, in the south of China in Guangdong province, um, I was in a town called Guangzhou, which is a city of maybe 20 to 23 million at this point. That's a small city in China. Small city in China with a state-of-the-art airport, uh, might I add, uh, which is irrelevant right now. But um, I was taken to some hole-in-the-wall restaurants um, where they did have authentic um, cuisine that was uh, phenomenal. However, the the Chinese delegation that I was with decided to um, bring out plates of uh, food that is not exactly um, on the Western palate, so to speak. So uh, I had... uh, whole uh, small green frogs that were um, sautéed in some type of sauce. Um, There was also uh, chicken feet that were prepared in uh, some type of way that I I can't quite describe. And then to cap things off, I was uh, served uh, snake, which the word for snake in Chinese is shi. So um, I ended up eating all of this food and uh i have to say it was an interesting experience being stared at um by chinese nationals as a uh, american business person and they i feel like they uh respected me a little bit more for trying the the uh, more exotic food so that was the highlight of my southern china experience culinary experience very cool. Uh, I'm curious as to what the snake tasted like. I didn't get to try snake myself while I was over there, but I did try something they called snake wine. Snake wine? How was that? It was an interesting experience. Essentially, the digestive tract is capable of processing venom from a snake, uh, which is obviously not processable by your blood. Uh, but whenever the tract is exposed to this venom, it creates a numbing sensation uh, up through the length of your body. It's kind of odd, but uh, it was honestly quite tasty. So you had a different experience than, say, having regular alcohol, regular wine? Uh, the, the venom actually physically affected your body in a way that's not a alcohol buzz, so to speak? Sure, I had the the you know typical effect of the liquor, but I also had an added effect of a completely numbed digestive tract, which was kind of an odd experience. It kind of lulled me to sleep on the bus right afterwards. Was it served in any type of uh, traditional manner? Because I had never heard of this, and this is very interesting to me. It was actually served in a uh, fairly untraditional manner. I'd say uh, if you went to a cookout here in the U.S. and they served lemonade, those uh, like plastic tubs that have the tap, that's what they had it in. Hmm. And and would 
Would the alcohol content like that of regular wine, like would you know, like 750 milliliters, a bottle uh, type of thing? Uh, I would I would say it's it's stronger than regular wine. So their liquor over there is called Joe, and uh, the most popular is Baijiu, which is more or less uh, I would liken it to sake, except that it has been in, inundated with spices such as star anise, anise and so on. Uh, so it's got kind of that licorice flavor to it. Uh, but I'd say that runs about 40, 50 proof. Is it, uh, does it derive from rice? Yes. It does. But, uh, yeah, that was very interesting. So that was my experience with snake. What did, what did you think of the meat itself? Uh, I mean, I guess it's a, it's, it's easy to say that it tasted like chicken, but it, it really did. Uh, it was a little bit tougher, um, and it was presented... Uh, in a manner that that actually you know it wasn't cooked out it, it looked it did resemble that of a snake and previous to going to prior to going to that restaurant um, we did uh, get to visit uh, a Chinese um, supermarket I guess would be the closest thing to it and in that market there were all types of live animals um, to, to consume to you just uh, oh there's a there's a snake I'd like to get that snake and I'm gonna cook that um, <clears throat> now keep in mind this is the south of China um, so it's a little bit different than um, Jiangsu province where you originally landed in Shanghai um, so I'd say the the food is a little bit that the native food is a little bit more uh, uh, exotic to to a uh, a westerner. Uh, Shanghai is definitely known as the super westernized city in China. Right. So it was an interesting transition because it was not too much of a culture shock at first when we got to Shanghai, and as we worked our way up the coast, we started to get into a culture that was more and more eastern, and uh, that that was kind of a neat experience. What was the size of the group that you went with? I went with my paper science class and the class above me, so a total of about, uh, I think, 40 of us went. No, that's really cool. So out of all the food experiences that you had, because you got to travel quite a bit um, inland, um, what would you say the most uh, spectacular was? The most spectacular, I honestly have to say, was uh, the hot pot experience. I had never been to a hot pot restaurant before, and it's essentially a small burner with a stand for a pot, and you are given broth, and you can add the meats and spices and fungi and any other kind of herb that you want to this pot, uh, and they will bring chili oil if you want it to be spicy, and... I thought that that was kind of the crowning jewel of the culinary experience in China. Mm, that sounds fantastic. Now, I have to ask, what level of spice do you like in your food? I, I'd say I am a uh, pretty spice-driven person. I, I, if I go to an Indian restaurant, for example, uh, they, they like things extremely spicy. And I, I will get the hot dish, and they're like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. They're like, all right, and I I go for it. Uh, 
So I, I have a pretty high tolerance for capsaicin. So if you're at a Thai restaurant, do you say to the server, I want it, I want this dish Thai spicy? I want it Thai spicy. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, another interesting thing that I had, you had the chicken feet. I did as well. I don't know how. Oh, okay. I don't know how they prepared it for you, but it was basically just like a spicy broth that they served it in, and uh, I found the the meat on the feet to be more or less rubbery. Yeah, I was not a fan of the texture of the chicken feet, and I really only did it so I could get more business. Uh, consumed it so I could get more business. I yeah I I tried it and it was, it was all right. Another interesting thing was the sea cucumber. Yes, the <laughs> texture on that is, was not desirable to me, um, but I tried it and it looks like you're you're not uh, too shy to uh, to not indulge in something of that caliber. Maybe you liked it. What did you think? Uh, I I tried it. It was prefaced with the fact that it is typically only reserved for distinguished guests so I felt rude not trying it. I was probably going to try it anyway but I made sure to eat the whole thing it, it more or less tasted like too thick jello that had no flavoring yeah, it's um, kind of marshmallowy. I, I I would give it, but no a, sugar. Yeah, no sugar. It's yeah. like a it's like a sugarless marshmallow. It's like if you if you uh, try the sea urchin at a, a, a sushi place. Uh, in a way, uh, it has that kind of uh, marshmallowy texture to it. That's personally not desirable, but you know, and it's when more or less Rome, bland. Yeah. That's that's the odd thing. But $10 a head for for sea cucumber in uh, China, that's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. Uh for for reference, I got a pair of or a whole bag of chopsticks, like 10 sets of chopsticks at the store and I paid like 50 cents for them that cost like 10 bucks here in the US. Right. Uh, did you guys happen to go to um, a popular dumpling establishment when you were in Shanghai? Uh, we we did get a few dumplings. The first night we went to a restaurant that had a rather unique dumpling. Uh, this was half steamed, half fried. And so they steamed it and then put sesame seeds on one half and stuck that half in that the fryer. That sounds delicious. It was honestly yeah. tasty, yeah. Uh, so that was probably the best dumplings I had while I was there. But the... Uh, Pales in comparison to what you can get here, right? Oh, uh, it's definitely a more unique experience. I, I don't think you could find anything like that here in the U.S., especially that particular preparation method. No one does that. Uh, so it was kind of neat. Did you notice any street food vendors while, while you were there? I, uh, on a midnight escapade, ran into a random couple, and uh, they happened to speak English, and I was dead set on some fried chicken. I wanted fried chicken. And so they took me to a street vendor, and it was just 
like two bucks i got like almost a pound of fried chicken fingers with like some really delicious mustard sauce that was pretty good borderline american style uh more or less yeah uh and the i mean the mustard was like clearly chinese i don't know if you've had chinese mustard but it's like spicy and uh it's it's a little different than the american style uh but the the chicken itself was like that and aside from that i must say i was skeptical of most of the street vendors i saw like raw meat just hanging out in open air no refrigeration or anything and i i suppose that people have done that for millennia uh but it didn't even look cured i i just steered clear of them for the most part because we had lots of meals to at our disposal would you recommend to our listeners that day to travel to china to both take in the food and the sights and just the culture Absolutely. I I think it was a, a phenomenal trip. I have a greater understanding of uh, the paper industry over there. That's what I went there for with my paper class. And so I, I kind of have a, a good idea of what another facet of my professional world acts like and I also have an idea of what another facet of my personal world acts like and so uh, I I met some some really cool people while I was over there I downloaded a WeChat app and I still chat with them from time to time Uh, and you know the thing that I would like to stress the most is that uh, it's a seemingly very different culture from the outside they've got a lot of different food from us they they partake in a lot of different activities uh, from us, but for the most part, they want to grow up and be successful and be able to provide for their family, and they're, they're just people. And so, uh, if you, if you want to get a perspective on that, go to China. It's a, it's a cool place. I would second that, and China is the United States' number one trading partner. We need to, re- you know, retain a, a good, healthy relationship with them, and cultural exchange, i.e., sharing each other's cuisine and keeping an open dialogue, is one way to do it. And uh, people like Will and myself uh, venture over there and and try their food and learn their culture. It's just a, it's a wonderful thing. The Solar Eclipse of 2017 was an event that was discussed in professional, academic, and social circles over the past few weeks. As the days drew closer to August 21st, near-giddiness took over with many people I spoke with, including myself. Although I didn't decide to travel to the totality zone, I knew plenty of opportunities existed here in the Triangle to join in on the fun. So I took our WKNC press kit, drove around Raleigh, and decided to pull into Shelley Lake Park as I saw many people gathering. People were overjoyed, kind, and a couple even gave me a pair of glasses, which I neglected to bring. As for the traditional glasses, many Eclipse washers engineered their own viewers made of cereal boxes, a gentleman in a welder's hat, 
And most interesting of all, a large elaborate setup that facilitated a time-lapse video of the eclipse with his cell phone. But best of all was four-year-old Emmy. Emmy and her mom were overjoyed for the occasion and I briefly spoke to her. Here's Emmy. Hey, I'm Matt. What's your name? Emmy. Emmy? What's going on today? We're going to see the eclipse. Yeah? What do you know about the eclipse? That the moon covers the sun. The moon covers the sun? Mm -hmm. And how often does the eclipse happen? Today. It, it does happen today. Do you know when it's going to happen again? No. I don't either. Have but I it's ever seen one? No. So your mom and dad have not? No. So that's a long time. Yeah. Do you think you'll get the chance to see another full eclipse in your lifetime, yeah. or is this it? This is it. This is it? Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool though, right? Yeah. Do you notice that it's getting darker outside? The great solar eclipse was much better than expected. I got to see crescent-shaped shadows, dragonflies flying in odd patterns, and most importantly, humans coming together to share a special moment in time. This is Matt Schneider for Eye on the Triangle. Thank you. Welcome back, Wolfpack, both new and returning. Summer's over and it's a brand new school year, which means it's a brand new Eye on the Triangle at a brand new date and time. For those of you who don't know, I am Ricky Dows, and I cover opinion content for WKNC's Eye on the Triangle. I give my wholly unsolicited opinion on controversial events happening on NC State's campus, the Triangle area, and the rest of the world. This week's segment is going to get a little more personal than me just ranting and raving for 5-10 to 10 minutes. On this week's episode of Eye on the Triangle, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about my summer. I spent the first half of my summer on campus, you know, taking classes during summer session one. I was taking nine credit hours, which is a lot when it comes to summer classes. I also had an internship at a marketing firm here in Raleigh, as well as a part-time job that kept me pretty busy. And all those distractions, the constant grind from nine to five, that all kept my mind off the fact that hundreds of miles away in a hospital in my hometown, my best friend was slowly dying. Just to give you guys a bit of exposition, my best friend Jasmine has well, had been fighting breast cancer since she was 18 years old. Over the years, we would all get super excited when the chemo worked, thinking she'd finally beat it for the last time, and, and every time we were disappointed when the tumors would rear their ugly heads back again. Three years later, aka this summer, she had accelerated to stage four cancer, meaning it was no longer just in her breast. It had spread to nearly every bone and organ in her body. It was in her lungs, her hips, her legs, and her cervix. And we all knew she had little to no chance of surviving. At 21 years old, your morality and the inevitable end can be a hard thing to think about. Not just for you, but for loved ones around you that have to watch you go through it. I kept myself busy while I was still at state because for me, the best way I knew how to deal with the trauma was just to not think about it at all. But once I returned home to be with her for her final days in a town so small, there's nothing around to really distract yourself with, dealing with my grief got much worse. And that's the discussion we need to have. The discussion that I'm going to have with you right now because we have to talk about young people going through the grieving process in a high-pressure environment like going away for college. My best friend isn't the only person I've lost while I've been away for school. Last year, my aunt passed away as well as one of my great uncles. 
deaths like that can hit hard for the family, especially when everyone is super close to each other. And for students that are close with their family and used to being with them all the time, the grief can hit so much harder when they're away from home at college. Purdue University did their own study and concluded that between 35 to 48 percent of college students will most likely grieve a death during their four years of school. They found that their grief would be expressed in any number of ways. Some students isolate themselves from their friends and family, trying to deal with the trauma on their own. The NC State University Counseling Center website says that this isolation can lead to loneliness and depression. One of our counselors, Dr. Jenny Glassmeyer, says that many students are not comfortable talking with their peers about grief or family illness because they don't want it to define them. And as a result, these students are often balancing stress and sadness on their own. It's a pretty common feeling for students to not want to bog down all their drama onto someone else. Balancing all the weight of that stress on your own, in addition to the weight of continuing college life as if nothing happened, can be draining and will lead to underperforming academically. Like I said, for me, lately dealing with my grief has meant keeping myself so busy that I don't allow myself to think about my friend's death. However, I can acknowledge that that isn't exactly the best way to deal with my loss. What can end up happening is that you pile so much up on your plate that you inevitably crash and burn. That's what happened to me last year when I lost my aunt. I committed myself to so many projects and so many organizations in an attempt to basically block off all my emotions so I wouldn't have to deal with them. Eventually, it all became too much. My immune system pretty much shut down and I was sick for five months straight. I don't know if I was actually sick with something or if it was my mind making me sick, telling me and forcing me to shut down, but it was the worst that I had ever felt in my life. I didn't go to class for weeks. I couldn't make myself leave my room to fulfill the commitments I had made to organizations like student media or multicultural student affairs. I basically dropped off the face of the earth for an entire semester. I snapped at pretty much anyone who tried to talk to me, friends and roommates alike. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to deal with anyone. In my head, I needed to get over it though, because no matter what, my classes and my commitments were going to move on without me. The stress of campus life adds on to the grieving process for students. Not only do they have to find a way to cope to find a new form of normal after losing a loved one, but they feel pressure to do so while continuing with the daily grind of student curriculum and activities. I'm here to tell you from my own experience that you don't have to jump right back into quote-unquote normal after losing someone important to you. Losing someone you love is never easy. It gets harder, though, when you try to deal with it all by yourself. And remember, there's no right way to grieve. Everyone grieves differently, and there are more effective ways of dealing with your grief than blocking it all out. Don't be like me. Take these tips from an NC State Counseling Center counselor and be healthy in the way you get through this time in your life. Number one, don't avoid your emotions. You're going to have good days and you're going to have okay days. And then you're going to have horrible days while dealing with the loss of a loved one. And on those days, you're going to miss them even more than you had on your good days. You're going to feel sad. You might cry. And that's okay. It might sound cliche, but it's okay to be sad. And don't worry about other people noticing that you're upset either, because we're all human and our emotions are valid. 
If you don't allow yourself to work through the pain, you permit yourself not to feel when you should instead allow yourself to experience the pain and to know that one day it will pass. Two, do not overexert yourself to the point of exhaustion. Don't sign up for every single student organization on campus in an attempt to outbusy your emotions. Not only is it damaging to your mental health to keep the way you feel blocked out, it's also going to put a dent in your physical health as you are literally running your body down. This can lead to a loss of appetite, extreme stress levels, and changes in sleep patterns, which can all be a shock to a young person's immune system. Look after yourself. Take care of both your body and your mind while dealing with your grief. Three, withdraw emotional energy and reinvest it in another relationship. This one can be the hardest step to master, but it basically means allowing yourself to feel happy and move on without feeling guilty. Many times when people lose someone that's important to them, they find it hard to make connections with other people. By allowing yourself to withdraw your emotional energy from the loss you just experienced, you can reinvest that energy into friendships and other relationships. People sometimes feel bad if they let themselves smile or if they seem to be moving on, but it doesn't mean that you've forgotten the person you lost. You always have to remember that you didn't just love your loved one. They loved you too, and they would have wanted good things for you after they've gone. And number four, talk to someone. Lean on friends with shoulders for you to cry on. Let them know about your bad days so you're not dealing with your grief and that sadness on your own. If you don't feel particularly close to anyone to share those kind of details, then there are so many campus resources at a student's disposal. NC State has a great counseling center within Student Health Services with therapists that get to know you and care about you personally. You can talk to them about how you're feeling, how you're coping with your loss, and ways to work through it even better. You can be as vague or as detailed as you want until you feel comfortable with your counselor. But the most important thing is that you use the resources available on campus to you and that you never, ever feel alone during a time like this in your life. You can make an appointment anytime between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. on Monday through Friday at Student Health's Counseling Center. You can also find more information on NC State's Counseling Center website. Dr. Glassmeyer told me the name of the website, but it's entirely too long and convoluted for me to repeat, but it's nothing that a quick Google search won't fix. By looking up the NCSU Counseling Center, you should get immediate results in finding it. It'll be the first link on the page. I can assure you, I am not the only student to have felt lost when dealing with losing a loved one, nor will I be the last. I know that there are going to be hard days, days where you're not going to want to do any of this. And while I can't promise that using all these tools and following all these steps are going to wave a magic wand and make your grief disappear, I can say that you will have done everything possible to put you on the path to recovery. You will never get over the loss of a loved one, but you can get through it. Until next time, this has been Ricky Dowles and you're listening to Eye on the Triangle.